Hello, friends. Thanks for tuning in to this sermon from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. Because of some technical difficulties, uh, the sermon audio picks up just into the first point about God's sovereignty in Jacob reaping what he sowed. And so all you missed is a reading of Genesis chapter 29. And then in the intro, we talk about uh, Jacob's initial encounter with the shepherds and meeting Rachel and laboring for her and feeling like it was just a few days. That seven years felt only like a few days because of his love for her. But we see in this very first part of this chapter, Jacob reaping what he sowed. His name means supplanter. If you look at his life, he's always striving and deceiving and posturing for his will, or he's trying to achieve God's will his way. He had deceived Esau out of his birthright. He deceived Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau. And then in this story, he gets out Jacobed by Laban in reaping what he sows. And so uh, the sermon picks up right here at this point. Thanks for listening. And so Jacob says, I will work for you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. He's infatuated with Rachel. He loves Rachel. I will work for you seven years. Now, a normal wage for a hired servant like this would have been around 18 shekels a year. Call it 20 for just easy math. So he's saying, I'll give you 140 shekels worth of labor as a wedding gift to you, even though normally a generous wedding gift would be 50 shekels. And Laban's like, this is a a deal. So he allows him to work for him seven years. And you kind of see how bristly this relationship has gotten because Jacob has to go to Laban to say, give me my wife. It's time. The seven years are due. Give me what the, give me the deal. And so you, you just now heard it, right? Laban pulls off this massive deception and the shift. The, the text literally says, when he woke up, behold, she Leah, like he's shocked. And so he goes to Laban and says, what is this you have done? Now, again, this is this accusation of guilt where we have seen it over and over in Genesis from Abimelech to God to Adam in the garden. What is this that you have done? You've committed this great sin. And then he says, why have you deceived me? Now, this is the same exact wording and language as in chapter 27 when Isaac tells Esau, your brother came deceitfully. So if you're reading these things in sequence, you're totally seeing Laban giving Jacob a little bit of his own medicine and Laban's response to him is so barbed. He says, we don't, we don't put the younger in front of the older in, in this country, right? Like we don't do it here. Like you did your brother there. Do you hear that? So he's saying we, it's not how we do things there. And so the readers again, drawn back to these happenings of Jacob working, deceiving, posturing for the blessing and The same is coming back on his own head. So we see God's sovereignty in Jacob reaping what he sowed. Now, for the believer in Jesus Christ, if you sow sin, you will reap the Father's discipline every time because the Father loves you. In Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6, God is quoting Proverbs saying, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
And he's giving you those two exhortations because your very tendency when being disciplined by the Lord is either to regard it lightly, like it's not some big deal, or to grow weary underneath the Father's discipline, to begrudge the Father and his discipline. But verse 6 of Hebrews 12 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. So he loves us enough to train us and to purge the sin from our lives that so easily entangles us. And so we're exhorted, don't regard it lightly, don't begrudge it, but respond to it. Now in Galatians 6, Paul writes to the church in Galatia saying, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption or destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so Paul, this is a massive wake-up call for everybody reading, everyone in the room. He's saying, if you as a way of life profess faith with your mouth but with your life, you sow to your own flesh, your own authority, and you are the God of your own life, you will from your flesh reap destruction in the end. Apart from what you declared to be true with your mouth, what is the fruit of your life? He says, if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap from the Spirit life now and in eternity. So this is this glorious reality that for all who come to Jesus by faith, Jesus reaped what you sowed with your life at the cross so that you could reap the benefit of his life. He reaped the fruit of your disobedience so that you could reap the fruit of his obedience. So that in 1 John, he says, if, if any of you have sinned, if you repent and you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. But if you persist in unrepentant sin, you can expect to reap the Father's discipline. And if you persist and do not respond to the Father's discipline, it could be that you are sowing from your flesh to the flesh and don't actually know him. And so he's, that text comes with this exhortation. Do not be deceived. Your heart is deceitful. Don't be deceived. Don't regard lightly the Father's discipline. He loves you. That's why he's chasing you down. That's why he's hemming you in. That is why he is giving you consequences for your actions so that you will repent and follow him. And we see it as a principle throughout Scripture that you will reap what you sow. So sow by the Spirit. And when you fail, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you and to purge you. And let's walk forward in the righteousness of Christ. So we see God's sovereignty in Jacob reaching, reaping what he sowed. The second place we see God's sovereignty is in Leah story, the unloved. Now, we have to remember that in the story of our lives and in all of life, God is writing every single word. He is the author. He is the painter who is working every single stroke. And I heard as an example uh, this week that he is like a painter that uses dark colors I remember watching Bob Ross as a kid. Who doesn't? Big Afro. You know the guy. And he's working on a canvas, and I have the 
uh, privileged position of being terrible at art. So it's even more miraculous to me. You're looking at him being like, I could do that. I'm looking at him like, what is happening? And he will start on the canvas with some really dark background, with some really dark colors. And you can look at it and be like, what are you doing? But then in the end, you need to trust the artist because he's, artist because he's working something beautiful. He's working something that wouldn't be the same without those dark colors, without the dark shades. There is no subplot or happening in your life that God does not care about or that he is not actively involved in and creating and sustaining. So listen to this. His sovereignty works from the beginning, not just when they're getting married, but from the very beginning. It's, it didn't just happen by accident that Leah was born with plain eyes or soft eyes or whatever the text says, and Rachel just happened to be more outwardly beautiful. That wasn't an accident. God was doing something. He was writing a story with both of these lives. And get this, he was loving Leah. He was loving her. And you see this, just a glimpse of this in this chapter. And for many in the room, it's not hard to imagine Leah's pain of feeling, just in a variety of circumstances in life, feeling unloved, feeling unwanted, feeling rejected. And verse 31 of our chapter says, when the Lord saw that she was hated. Now, this term means loved less than, right? It she, she, he saw that she was loved less than Rachel, unwanted, unloved. God opened her womb, and he blessed her, her specifically. God's blessing came to the unloved, to the unwanted, to the rejected. And then you can see the progression of what's happening in her heart, in her pregnancies, in what she's naming her children. So you can look at um, the birth of Reuben. She, she begins by saying, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. So this is her testimony, and it means more because of the dark strokes in the background. When, when she's saying, the Lord has seen me. Nobody else sees me, but the Lord sees me. Now, if she was just perfectly accepted, that testimony would mean less. But into the midst of her suffering, into the midst of being unwanted and rejected, she says, the Lord sees me. But her aim is still, but, and I want my husband to love me and to see me. And so she has a second son. She names him Simeon. says, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, and he has given me the son also. So now her testimony is, the Lord has seen me, and the Lord hears me. Even when nobody else hears me, the Lord does. Son number three, Levi. Now my husband will be attached to me. Now he'll want me because I've borne him three sons. So this will give me a leg up over my sister because I'm actually producing children and she's not. So now my husband will want me. And see, so she's still pining after the affections of her husband and wanting to be accepted by him mainly. And then with the fourthborn, she names him Judah. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Now, this is not full and final victory in Leah's heart from jockeying for the love of her husband. You see that all throughout chapter 30. But you can see that God is actively at work in her heart to draw her to himself. So she starts out wanting her husband to love her. And by the fourth born, she's saying, this time, I see my, my motive, my intentions, all this has been wrong. I'm going to praise God. Now, is it any wonder then that the Lord Jesus came as the lion of the tribe of Judah, and that the promised offspring 
of Abraham came through Leah. And you can just think about this with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and she is called, greetings, O favored one. You're the one blessed by God. From now on, all generations will call me blessed because she gets to be the mother of Jesus. And so we see that this is a mark of the favor of God and the blessing of God to get to be in the genealogy of the very coming Son of God. And so the question is, who of the two was more favored? The one who had the outward trappings, the outward adornments, and who had the favor of Jacob? Or the one who lacked the things that her husband was looking for but was selected by God to be in the genealogy of Christ? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God chooses what is low and despised in the world to shame and bring to nothing the things that man values so that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord and that our confidence would be him alone. And so what we have desperate need of this morning, church, is to pray to see things how God sees them, which is to say to see things as they actually really are and to value them accordingly as to how things really are. And I hope that as an aside, if you're in this place and you feel in a place of rejection or unloved or unwanted, you need to hear the gospel of Jesus, that God moved heaven and earth to draw you to himself and to accept you into his family. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? You are loved and prized by the God of the universe, and he has sent his son to draw you into his fellowship. We need to pray to see things as they really are and to value what is spiritual more than what our eyes can see and let his consolations actually delight our soul. The third and sort of final place we see God's sovereignty, but I wanted to camp out here, is God's sovereignty over the womb and all of life. God's sovereignty over the womb and all of life. Now, I want to draw your attention to verses 31 and 35. Now, verse 31 says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, loved less, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So God opened Leah's womb, and he closed Rachel's. He, he did that. So after he accomplished his purpose in Leah, look at verse 35. She says, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So God opened Leah's womb on purpose when he wanted to. And God closed Leah's womb temporarily on purpose, when he wanted to. God was the decisive party. And whether or not Leah got pregnant in both instances, or whether or not she didn't get pregnant, right? And so I want you to stay with me here because this has massive implications, yes, on childbearing, for sure. Everybody get nervous in the room. But it also has massive implications on all of life, So I don't want you to close off and think, oh, I've already developed a conviction around this, or I don't want you to talk to me about this. This is my own personal business. But the question 
that I've been asking myself all week, I want to ask you. Because this, this issue is not just about childbearing. It has to do with all of life. And the question is, do you let God be God? God's a big name. It's a big word. And you know what it means. It means he's the creator, the sustainer, the one who gives, the one who takes away, the one who kills, the one who makes alive, the one who judges all peoples with equity. He's the creator and the sustainer of life. The word of God says that if he were to draw his breath back to himself, mankind would return to dust. He's God. Now, he is God whether or not you allow him to be God functionally in your life or not. But in a great mystery, God allows you to reject him, to resist him, to quench him. And so the question I've been asking myself all week is this. Is he God or not? And if he is God, then is there any place in my life where I am refusing him his rightful place as God? That's the question. Is he God? And if he is God alone, then is there any place in my life where I have shielded an area of my life or part of my life from his authority as God? Now, this specific issue of God's sovereignty over opening and closing the womb is such a good example for us because it's very culturally acceptable and the implications for our life are massive and you push on it and it will expose underlying idolatry. Now, apart from the word of God and apart from reading the word of God in community, it is very easy for us to fall prey to culturally normative sins. And this is what I'm saying. You, you have to be on guard and know that your heart is deceptive and your heart loves to and wants to subconsciously even look for ways to justify its behavior. That is God belittling or God rejecting. Now, if we can find an example that is a lot of people, even better. Because now we have groupthink and we've got, I've got a lot of examples of people who do this. So this must be like a, some sort of fringe commentary, small voice. And if those people are respectable, even better. So we have to be on guard against sins that are prevalent in the world, but especially those that are grievously commonplace in the church. So, for example, loving money and comfort and convenience. Well, we have set up safeguards where all of a sudden, if, if pastors or counselors or anyone ever talks about money, then they're seen as prosperity po- pastors or people that just love money or are talking about money, so they get pigeonholed into not talking about it so that people can worship their gods without any sort of anybody speaking against it. And we have created a safe place for us to love our comforts and love our convenience and to actually love money and trust money and nobody can have any recourse and we're just free to do our own thing. Then you take sort of a Western individualism that has worked its way into the church where all of a sudden personal relationships with God have become private relationships with God outside of the community of faith where I have all of a sudden convictions before the Lord that I'm allowed to keep private to myself without encouraging one another, exhorting one another, bearing one another's burdens and all the one anotherings of Scripture. Gluttony is untalked about. 
because we all love ourselves and we love our appetites and we don't want anybody to deal with those things. And there's gossip and tolerating secret sexual sin because we can find the examples are legion. And so if everybody else are just giving to these same things, then what's the big deal? And, and it has become so commonplace in the church that couples decide to have children. You hear this language and it, we don't even hear it anymore because for most of you, you woke up into a world where this was commonplace in the church. Now, as early as 90 years ago, there was, Levi pointed this out to me earlier, Levi Simpson, there was no denomination anywhere, Catholic, Protestant, otherwise, that actually affirmed or allowed for the use of contraception or natural family planning. It just wasn't a thing. But it has become so commonplace in the, in the world today. And some, hear me start treading here, and your heart cries, legalism. Oh, I'm scared of where he's going to go. Don't, don't go there because our hearts pull the fire alarm when we start thinking about God's control being so pervasive in our life and actually hemming us into where we can't control things. And so we say, well, I just feel like he's just kind of judging. My, listen and lean in. I'm judging no one. This is, uh, we're going to dive into what the Word of God says and I'm going to say this now, and I'm going to say it again later so that you don't miss this, okay? I am not this morning laying down a law for people of this is what you have to do and this is what's binding on you. But I don't want you to have such an easy out from evaluating your own heart to see, not just with regards to childbearing, but in all of life, do I let God be God? Now, Kayla read this the other day from some mom on social media, and I think it is spot on. She said, no one has ever decided to have children. You only decide not to. And you, you can ask any family that's wrestled with barrenness and has been unable to have children, which may be the painful experience of people in the room. And if that's you, I'm sorry. And I pray that the Lord opens your womb and that he showcases his mercy and his kindness to you in the midst of waiting. But no one has ever decided to have a baby. In God's mercy, he works a complete and utter miracle. And so I've, we have preached this in other messages. I want to keep driving this home. God has not set up his world to operate apart from him. We have to let this issue, I've been praying for this all week, that it would drive this sort of theistic evolutionary mindset from our hearts in a thousand other instances. Theistic evolution sort of says that God set things up and then hit the go button, and it just has been running by his natural law ever since. That is not the way that God runs and operates his world. Jesus is upholding everything by the word of his power. Flowers do not bloom because that's what flowers do. Flowers bloom because Jesus says, bloom, and colors explode. Birds do not fly because God gave them two wings and let them run on their own. Birds fly because Jesus has designed them aerodynamically and he's actively upholding them by the word of his power. He is intricately, supernaturally, majestically involved in all the details of life and in all the details of your life. And listen, he cares about all of it. He cares. 
And that's why I think so, this is just one instance when in so many areas of our lives we just think, well, God just set up things like this and he, maybe he just doesn't care about the nitty-gritty or down to this ground-level details of my life. Maybe he's just given me freedom in this area because all these other people act like this. and we, So we have this... Jumping ahead. All right. God has not just created a world with natural laws where a husband plus a wife equal a baby. One plus one equals two, and a husband plus a wife equal a baby apart from his creative power at work. Psalm 127, verse 3, says, Behold, that means, look, behold, children are a gift from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is a reward. What does gift mean? Saying this, children are a gift from God to you. Now, just in Genesis, where we've already been, I want you to see the Lord working this gift. Genesis 16, verse 2, Sarah says, she tells Abraham, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That was the Lord's doing. He, she knew it. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So she creates a workaround. Does that sound familiar? That we create a workaround? Genesis 20, verse 18. The Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Because they had Abraham's wife, he closed all the wombs, turned them off. Genesis 30, verse 2. In the next chapter, Rachel says, Jacob, give me children or I die. And Jacob looks at her with anger and says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And it's a question we would do well to ask ourselves. Am I in the place of God? Genesis 30, verse 17. God listened to Leah's prayers and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Genesis 30, verse 22. God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and he opened her womb. 1 Samuel 1, 5. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now, Kayla had a good example that I thought would it'd just be good for a mental image. I think sometimes we think that childbearing is sort of like this conveyor belt of children that God has just set up on, on go, and he is cool and detached and removed from it, and he gave you the on and off switch, on, off, on, off. Now, I'm going to turn it off permanently, just a conveyor belt of children. But if children are a gift from the Lord, and they're fearfully and wonderfully made, and they're intricately woven in the depths of their mother's womb, and God gives them to people, then far from it being a conveyor belt where we have the on and off switch, they are a gift from the hand of the Lord, handmade and hand-given. Now, this is what I want you to hear before we go any further. I am not laying some law on everyone that God would never tell you to prevent childbearing in any circumstance. For example, and this is not even black and white in this instance, so don't just so easily give your heart an out. Remember, our hearts look for outs, that we look to deceive ourselves. There could be some life-threatening issue or some great cause for mission overseas where the Lord could tell people to prevent either temporarily, maybe even permanently. God does things unlike how we think he would do them all the time. So I'm not saying that God would never do that. 
But this is discerned by his word and in community that God affirms that this is what he wants you to do. I'm not saying that he's led you in that direction, but I'm saying I could see that. But it's so important in any of these decisions, in any decision in life, that it is a prayerful decision. We are those who have died with Christ and have died to ourselves and our own authority and have been raised to walk in the newness of Jesus' life under the authority of King Jesus. And so as the Apostle Paul said, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Be fully convinced. And we're fully convinced as we're in the Word and as we're in community with other people making this decision in the community of faith. And Paul says in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith, meaning you're not fully convinced that this is the Lord's will, it is sin to you. In any activity in your life, so I'm saying we can springboard from this to all of life, we are called to walk by God's Spirit, living intimately with Him, Him leading us. And if we walk unilaterally, on our own authority and have areas of our lives that we shield from him and we are like, I think this is okay, I hope this is okay, but there's a check in your spirit and you blow past that stop sign because you just see everybody else doing it or it seems culturally commonplace and you're not fully convinced in your mind, then the Bible says it's sin to you. Now you can be fully convinced and it still be sin to you because you're operating in isolation and you're You are not the final judge and jury of whether or not something's okay. But what our family planning most often represents, most often, is allowing God to be God so far, but no further. Not when the stakes are this high. I can't think of any decision or event in your life that has more far-reaching implications than having a child. If you have a child, you know. You have no control over what that child's going to be like, what, what grief they're going to cost you, how much they're going to cost. You don't have control over how many children you're going to have and therefore what people will think about you, what your quality of life will be, what car you're going to have to drive, what, what house you're going to have to live in, where's that provision going to come from. And so we reason our way out of God being God. It, this is a scary thing, and we've, we've been in this place recently. I've been wrestling with God on this. God, I don't know where, what car I'm going to drive. Insert new van. Given to us. I'm, I'm telling you, I was wrestling with God on that like an idiot. And then somebody gave us a van. So don't wrestle with the Lord. <laughs> One of the big issues, I think if you were going to boil it down to two things, you just check your own heart in it. It's a love of money, a love of control, and a fear of man. That fear of man's a big deal. doesn't feel good to walk into a restaurant and have people count all your kids out loud. And then to question you whether or not you care about the earth or love birth control. Right? If you know what causes that. But... These families are a witness to the truth. Children are a gift from the Lord. It is not believers with children who are crazy. It's the world. And 
we have an underdeveloped theology of the role of childbearing and childrearing in our discipleship. When God said, be fruitful and multiply, it was the first mandate to say, I want to fill the earth with my image through godly offspring of my people. So in Malachi 2, he's rebuking people for not being faithful to the wife of their youth. And he says, what was the one God seeking in your marriage covenant? He was seeking godly offspring. But because you woke up into a world where feminism reigned and secularism reigned and the sexual revolution reigned, sex was detached from marriage, detached from childbearing, detached from all of these things. So you woke up into a world where it was just normal to detach the two and to be able to make your own decisions and to have your own freedom because this is America and we're autonomous. And so it's become commonplace to insert ourselves in the place of God because we don't really believe that he's sovereign over the womb and we don't really believe that he cares. We actually don't trust him because we don't believe that he's actually going to stop or we're scared he won't. And so because we don't want to be a certain kind of family or look a certain kind of way or we don't trust God to provide the grace it's going to take to be a parent to more kids than we have or we don't believe him for the provision to provide for more kids than we have then we just insert ourselves in his place and usually what it looks like is we want this to be done as a private decision that's left alone to our family this is a hear this personal conviction Brothers and sisters, be on guard against, quote-unquote, personal convictions that are really often a guise or a mask for we are going to do what we want and we are frightened that the more input we have from godly people who are walking with Jesus are going to influence this decision and we'll call it judgment or we'll call it a lot of other things because we love to give ourselves a way out, but there is not a decision in your life that you should have to shield from the input and the counsel of godly people who are walking with Jesus. It's a win-win scenario. If, if you're wrong, then they can lovingly show you that. And if you're walking in the light of God's will, then they can pray with you and rejoice in that. So it is a win-win. So this is just one, hear this. If you're only hearing childbearing on this, you're not listening. This is one ground level area of life that represents the way that we can make peace with rejecting God's sovereignty in our lives. We make peace with it. We have culturally acceptable ways of inserting ourselves in the place of God and we can do it completely unaware. Now on paper, we know that God is sovereign and in control over all things. But in my life and in your life, is he in control over my things? That's the question. Because we can be theologically correct in saying, God, I know that you're sovereign over everything. But just don't be sovereign over these things. So questions, does he have his way in something as big in whether or not you date or whether or not who you date, whether or not you marry or who you marry, how many children you have, 
the purchases you make, from cars to gadgets to your house to where you live and what kind of house you live in? Does his sovereignty have overarching authority in your life where you allow God to be God in the details of your life because, believer, he cares. He cares about all of it. And he's designed that all of it be honoring to him, and he loves you, and he has what is best for you, and you actually rob yourselves of joy when you shield yourself and your life from the goodness of God. Now, just anecdotally, I've had multiple friends realize that their answer to the question of whether or not they allow God to be God was no. And I've got multiple friends that have had gotten vasectomies reversed. Multiple friends that have gotten off birth controls that they realize were abortifacient and dishonoring to God because they slaughter babies in the womb. When we come awake to some of these things in this instance or in others, some that have come awake to realizing that they've not let God be God and with regard to some addiction or some habit or some prop thing, and they're repenting and turning to the Lord. But I want to point you to Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, John says, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. And I would say, I am preaching this message to you believers, so that you may not sin. You go your own way, you do your own will instead of the Father's will, it's sin. And so I'm, I'm preaching these things to you that you may not sin, but listen to this good news. If anyone does sin, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so this is where I'm leaving you today. And Eric, you guys can come back up. Uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, staring at the cross, was facing the ultimate cost. So childbearing represents no big decision compared to the cross of facing the righteous indignation of God that your sins deserve. And counting the ultimate cost, Jesus chose to be obedient to the Father and chose the Father's will to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so he's in the garden and he says, the Bible says he was in agony and he's sweating drops of blood and he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, then take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Let your will be done. And he did this, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that you are not condemned when you choose your own will. The Bible is so clear that he does not treat believers according to their iniquities or according to their sins, but as far as the east is from the west, he has removed your sins from you. This is what first John is getting at in his first letter. Look, I'm preaching this so that you may not sin. Let's let God be God in our experience, in the nitty-gritty details of our life. Invite him in to everything. Even decisions as big as how big your family's going to be. And let your life showcase the trustworthiness and the goodness of God. And then when you fail, you can know that Jesus never did. When you fail at saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done, and you prioritize your will instead of the Father's will, it is not okay. It's so not okay that God had to crucify his son to pay for that sin. But, praise his name, he did. 
Because he who never went his own way became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that he could give you a new life by his spirit and say, by this we know that we've come to know him, beloved. He's given us new hearts and a new spirit that is aimed at his will and not ours. And if we love him, we ought to obey his commandments. We ought to have this heart like Jacob where serving the Lord feels like nothing. It feels like no time at all because we love him. It's not burdensome to obey his commandments. It's a joy. We run in the path of his commandments because he set our hearts free. It's a joy to follow Jesus. And it's a great joy to know that as a backdrop in the midst of all of our failing, Jesus never failed. Jesus stayed committed to the Father's will even unto death so that you could be forgiven and freed to walk in the newness of his life. And so I want us to respond. As I think about the response of how you could respond to the Lord, my, my prayer has been that we would, as a church, no one left out, would pray, Father, search me and try me and see if there be any hidden and ways that I've deceived my own heart into being my own God or into acting outside of your authority. I want to come underneath submission to your word and into submission to my brothers and sisters so that I'm making God-fearing, God-honoring decisions in community by your word. And God, I haven't done that. And so, God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me of this unrighteousness and give me a fresh desire to walk in surrender to King Jesus. But maybe you've never placed your trust in Jesus. And I want to point you to the rich young ruler. This young man came and asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. And the, the man's like, yeah, I kept all those from my youth. Just riddles them off. And he says, he says he, Jesus looked at him with love and compassion. After the guy self-righteously said, yeah, I'm a good person. And he looked at him with love and compassion. He says, this one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor. Now, you've heard it taught many times. This is not just this universal rule for everyone to go sell everything that you have. But he came right to the man's idol right to his point of what would keep him from fully surrendering to God. Maybe for you it's childbearing. And he came right up to it and he says, this one thing you lack, you, you need to sell everything and let me be your treasure. And it says that the man walked away from Jesus sad. And the greatest travesty is that he's sitting there face to face with the treasure of the universe. And the Bible says because he had many possessions... He walked away from Jesus because stuff had his heart, not Jesus. And so the implications are multiple. One, as believers, are there things in our life that would cause us to walk away from Jesus sad because we love them more than him, including the rights and controls to our own life, the rights to our finances, the rights to our relationships? Does he have control? But maybe you've never placed your trust in Jesus. And all of this is alerting you to the fact that you have never surrendered your life 
to Jesus. You've never embraced the gift of his forgiveness for all of your God-belittling rejection of the authority of God. He has given his son so that you may be forgiven and freed and that you can have the gift of eternal life. And Jesus says, count the cost. He let this poor young man walk away sad. He didn't come back and say, wait, 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 wait. If you just pray this prayer after me, I'll get you into heaven, and then you can continue to kind of work out the fine print in your experience. And you can just gradually give your life to me. He doesn't say that. He says, I will be your Lord over all or not at all. And so let's pray. Let's ask God. This is, a, this is not a law to lay on you. This is a life-giving wake-up call. Is Jesus king over it all? Do you let God be God of your life? And if he's really God, is there any area of your life that you're withholding from him? Let's let go and find joy in being able to surrender completely to King Jesus over all of life. Let's pray. We're going to pray. We're going to sing one song in response. Um, If you've never placed your trust in Jesus and you want to enter into a relationship with God by faith, I invite you to come talk to me after the gathering. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus. But the Bible says today, if you hear his voice, today's the day of salvation. Don't put it off. We get to celebrate Ariana Tebow doing just that after our first song. And so please stick around. Let's worship together. But I want you to, believers in Jesus, in the quiet of your heart as we sing this song, maybe Eric, you can give him a couple minutes just to pray. And just let's ask the Lord to search us and try us and for him to have his way. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. It is so plain. You are sovereign over all that you've made. You're faithful to discipline your children when we go our own way. You give us the consequences of our actions, not completely, not ultimately, because Jesus has taken our place. But you discipline those whom you love. You convict us of sin. You convict us of ways that we've gone our own way and you call it love. You purge us of what will hurt us and free us into being servants of the living Christ. So God, we come to you as one church with one heart saying, God, search us and try us. Lord Jesus, we want you to be God over every nook and cranny of our lives because you are worthy and you're good and you are trustworthy. And so have us. And I pray if there's anybody in the room that has yet to have their eyes open to the beauty and the truth of what you have done for them in Christ, the love that you have for them in Jesus in the way that you have made for them to have peace with God, I pray that they would not put off any longer the state of their soul before a living God, but that today would be the day of salvation and freedom. Lord, we love you. Would your spirit have your way in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen.